the original mythic figure of the Wild West. He was the definition of a living legend. He even had a state capital named after him while he was still alive. So why don't you even know his name? This is no flame out, no fad, no flash in the pan. This is the Forgotten Famous. Here's your host, Matt Mitchell. For better or worse, the American West is no longer wild. It's a Super Bowl host. It's a casino seafood buffet. It's the Utah Jazz. But even today, in a time of Tupac holograms and pizzas delivered by drone, our fascination with the American West is as strong as ever. We still remember names like Wyatt Earp, Billy the Kid, Jesse James. People went crazy over HBO's Westworld. We love Western stuff so much, we even remember a guy who wore a raccoon on his head back when Tennessee was the end of the American map. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. But the thing we recognize fastest is a single figure, the stoic Western hero, that brave but humble, rough-and-ready man in the saddle galloping through the tumbleweeds. He doesn't even need a name. We've seen him a million times. But incredibly, the man who most inspired this character, one is universally known as the damsel in distress or the drunken frat guy, is no longer a household name. And considering the status he achieved in his own lifetime and well beyond, that's pretty crazy. But then, just like now, it's pretty hard to separate the man, the myth, and the legend. But make no mistake, Christopher Houston Carson, better known as Kit Carson, was as real as it gets. In a time when starring in adventure books and bloody conflicts made you a star, Kit was an A-lister. If I had to describe him in one word, I'd say outdoorsy. His whole life was spent outside, and by the end of it, Carson was one of the most famous Americans, known in every corner of our beautiful continent, North America, the best continent. Kit's dad died in an accident when Kit was only eight years old, leaving behind 10 kids and a forlorn wife that were now flat broke. Kit was made a saddle maker's apprentice, but he hated it because it's like, ugh. But Kit escaped this terminally lame adulthood thanks to a little phenomenon I like to call beaver fever. At the time, beaver pelts were used to make the most fashionable hats in the world. Demand for this rodent was so high, they'd been hunted pretty much to extinction overseas. But like Christopher Walken pleading for cowbell, fancy folks said they gotta have more beaver. And once people found out that the waterways of the Rocky Mountains had roughly one zillion beavers in them, trappers from everywhere headed west. It was an exceptionally difficult job, and trapping teams could use all the inexpensive help they could get. Even if that help was a small, completely illiterate teenager named Kit. That's right. Kit ran away from home and eventually signed on with a bunch of dudes that defined the phrase grizzled vets. Crazy beards, tasseled jackets, buffalo-based textiles, the whole deal. Essentially, these were independent contractors. They didn't want to settle the land, they just wanted to go in, get some beaver pelts, and get out. 
you could even call them eager beavers. But, but don't, they would have stabbed you. Now, trouble was bad for business, so developing relationships with the locals was essential. And while Kit's legacy on the subject of American Indians is extremely complicated, the easiest way to explain it is that he developed lifelong mutual bonds with some tribes, was a sworn enemy of others, and did some things he'd live to regret. But to flourish out there, he developed arguably the most comprehensive knowledge of the incredibly diverse tribal landscape and taught himself more than a half dozen native languages, including the universal sign system plus Spanish and French. So at the same age I was diving into my first case of Keystone Ice, he was diving into icy rivers, freezing his stones off, traveling thousands of miles and becoming a grizzled vet himself. And it wasn't easy. He was small, about 5'5", with long blonde hair and blue eyes, and a fair-skinned face that, despite looking like it had never once in his whole life smiled, was often compared to a lady's. Nice. But he earned a reputation for being like a really great, honorable guy. He was clean living, he was great with a rifle, and he was pretty much the ballsiest guy anybody had ever met. But as Heidi Klum taught us, As you know in fashion, one day you're in, and the next day, you're out. And before Kit was even 30 years old, Beaver was out, Silk was in, and his trapping days were suddenly over. But as luck would have it, Kit soon had himself a historical meet-cute with an army lieutenant on a Missouri steamboat. At this point, much of the West was still a total mystery. Courtesy of a few supremely uninformed white people, many maps still contained a mythical river called the Buenaventura that supposedly came right down from the Rockies, straight through the desert, all the way through California to the ocean, which, spoiler alert, is definitely not a thing that exists. But to finally figure out what the deal was out there, the feds assigned Lieutenant John C. Fremont with mapping the only known overland path to the Pacific, the very mysterious and very, very dangerous route known to anyone with more than four days of schooling as the Oregon Trail. Giddy up. Fremont got this assignment from his wife's father, the intimidating Missouri Senator Thomas Hart Benton, who had once shot a guy in the throat in a duel, <gasps> called for a rematch, then shot him dead. So not the kind of father-in-law you disappoint. Fremont knew the only Americans that really knew the way were trappers. And after Kit strikes up a convo with him, Fremont mentions he really needs an experienced guide. And in a classic case of 1800s steamboat networking, Kit doesn't go, OMG, Mr. Fremont, I'm the perfect guy for this. I've done, like, all the trapping, LOL. Instead, he plays it real cool, and his humble demeanor totally wins Fremont over. He gets the job, the best-paying job he'd have his whole life, on the spot. In 1842, the team began their journey west, and the adventures that followed made Fremont a very famous man. But they made Kit Carson a legend. Their first trip is a total success. Congress is so pumped about it that they publish Fremont's full report as a book, and it's immediately picked up by newspapers all over the country. And reading the report, I can see why. Unlike most books then and now, this book is both fun and awesome. Few people east of the Mississippi, or, or anywhere really, had ever laid eyes on him. But Kit Carson was the name on everybody's lips. All throughout Fremont's report, he's jumping into rivers, he's warding off danger, he's killing buffalo to help them survive. 
At one point, a couple of Mexican strangers crossed their path. They say a group of Indians raided their party and stole all their horses. Now, this was a really big deal. To quote Kit's biographer, Edward Ellis, The most flagrant crime on the frontier is horse stealing. He who shoots one of his fellow men has a chance of escaping punishment. But if he steals a horse and is caught, his case is hopeless. Out West, you didn't call the cops. Kit learned this from his time as a trapper. It was vital to deliver your own justice, or your party got labeled as a pack of chumps and got attacked over and over again. So Carson volunteers to help them, and he and one other guy ride 50 miles through the Mojave Desert, find the horses and the Indians who stole them, enjoying a big dinner of, that's right, horse meat. They surprise attack the whole group, who ditch the horses they hadn't eaten yet, and bolt into the mountains. Mission accomplished, and all for the benefit of a couple perfect strangers. But wait! In the attack, Carson shot a couple guys, and per the custom of the West, started scalping one of them. And right in the middle, scalp halfway off, the guy jumps up, screaming like crazy until Kit finishes him off. All that real-life insanity is just two of the hundreds of pages in this absolutely action-packed book. Kit and Fremont go even deeper into the unknown on two more trips, mapping the entire Oregon Trail. They become some of the first Americans to ever see Lake Tahoe. They cross deserts I've had trouble driving an air-conditioned sedan across. They even climb the freezing Sierra Nevadas in the middle of winter, just like the famous Donner Party a couple years later. But thanks to Kit, they don't end up eating each other. Congress combined Fremont's second expedition report with the first one and published a two-part thriller. Instead of using a title like Kit Carson's Death-Defying Escapades into the Great Unknown, they used a really terrible name only a bureaucrat could come up with, but I'm going to kind of zhuzh it up here with a British accent. The narrative of the exploring expedition to the Rocky Mountains in the year 1842 and to Oregon and North California in the years 1843 to 1844. Regardless of the title, the book was a mega hit. Congress didn't copyright it, so publishers started printing it all on their own. The continent's vast interior had remained a mystery to almost everybody since the days of Columbus, and people were dying to hear about what was out there. Copies of this book were flying off the shelves. To put sales in perspective, over in England, Charles Dickens had scored a recent hit with A Christmas Carol, quickly selling 15,000 copies. This two-part Fremont report sold over 100,000. Humbug. After reading the report, tons of people, now realizing that the West isn't a terrifying hellscape, but someplace you could actually live, start flooding West. And after Kit delivers news of a California gold strike, America's original get-rich-quick scheme, thousands more hit the road. There were just 27 states after the second book was published, and just nine more when Nevada named its newly minted state capital Carson City after him. But in less than three generations, the once terrifying, unexplored wilderness was populated enough to round out the lower 48. And America was fruited plains, Purple Mountain's majesty, and sea to shining sea. All Kit Carson wanted to do was to preserve the beautiful Western landscape he'd always called home. But out of a duty to his bosses and his government, he ends up being the primary agent of its total transformation. Oh, the irony! 
After their last expedition together, Fremont dispatched Kit to DC. Now a living legend, Kit caused quite a stir among gawking city folk, and not just because he was famous, but because he refused to change out of his buckskin clothes and leave his rifle in his room. He met with President James Polk and finally wore his first suit to a somewhat awkward White House dinner. <clears throat> Kit wasn't much of a talker, and he hated telling stories about himself, which is all anybody wants celebrities to do at a party. Plus, as a young man, President Polk had this unbelievable no-anesthesia surgery for kidney stones and suffered from debilitating diarrhea pretty much his whole adult life. So he wasn't exactly the life of the party. Same goes for his wife, Sarah Polk, a Southern Presbyterian who tried to turn the White House into that town from Footloose. But at least the food was good. After returning west, Kit came to a turning point. The wife of a prominent merchant, one of the thousands who were heading west, had been kidnapped by Indian raiders. The rescue team turned to Kit for help, and they tracked her down along with her kidnappers. He advised a sneak attack, but he was overruled in favor of a hostage negotiation, which did not end well. The Indians took off, killing the hostage just before they fled. The experience haunted everyone involved, but the most haunting thing about the entire experience for Kit was found among her belongings. A book entitled Kit Carson, The Prince of the Gold Hunters. His actual heroics in Fremont's reports were so crazy, publishers knew there was no such thing as an unbelievable story about Kit Carson. So without his knowledge, they used his name to sell outlandish dime novels and magazines. And despite his reputation working in and among Indian tribes and twice marrying Indian women, they typically depicted him murdering them. On one cover, he's simultaneously stabbing one Indian warrior in the chest and another in the back. Yeah, they're, they're pretty rough. This was the first time he'd ever been confronted with his own mostly fictitious mythology. And again, he couldn't even read it himself. He was still illiterate. Someone had to read this to him, and he discovered it was about Kit Carson heroically saving a woman who'd been kidnapped by Indians, the very thing he'd just failed to do. Over the next two decades, books like this became increasingly popular, and more than 70 books involving Kit were the most popular of all. But even after his death, and long after the West was settled, Kit remained an incredibly popular figure. With the advent of the American Western film, Kit Carson's folk hero legacy evolved from the stab-happy trapper of the gold rush and into the prototype for the selfless Wild West hero, friend to the wagon train, fighting for what's right. In the 1930s, the movie serial Fightin' with Kit Carson debuted, with Johnny Mac Brown delivering dreadful lines like, Mr. Elliot, you folks back east have no idea what lies beyond this frontier. The Kit character got a lot folksier in the 40s film Kit Carson, pronouncing words like California and dispensing such nuggets of wisdom as, Slow down, you horses. You'll get where you're going quick if you don't hurry so fast. Yes, sir. And who can forget... No use going back someplace you've been when there's so many places you ain't been. By the 1950s, Kit Carson was a bankable, family-friendly character. The syndicated TV show The Adventures of Kit Carson was teaching a new generation of kids they could always trust Kit to do what's right. It'll be all right, Mrs. Barker. I'm Kit Carson. For 50 years after the first talking picture, not a decade went by without a Kit Carson performance. As late as the 1980s, actor Rip Torn 
who taught us if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball, was starring as Kit Carson in miniseries. My name is Carson Christopher. Folks call me Kit. But all fame is fleeting, and Kit the folk hero has all but disappeared from pop culture. Ah, but Disney star Fess Parker, better known as TV's Davy Crockett and the guy who sang the theme song you heard earlier, would give Kit the ultimate compliment, a campy 50s ballad of his very own. Now up in heaven's mountains free Where buffalo and beaver be There's a buckskin figure lean and tall Kit Carson, greatest of them all Carson, Carson, old Kit Carson Mountain man in buckskin tan Help keep this country free This is The Forgotten Famous I'm Matt Mitchell, thanks for listening And I'll never forget you